FutureEyes goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 35 of the podcast, the topic is the quest for artificial intelligence. Our guest is Peter Voss, CEO and founder of iGo.ai. In this conversation, we talk about how the field of artificial general intelligence has evolved, what intelligence really is, whether machines have it, and what it takes to bring true progress in this field. Quick word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of select talent from thousands of experts across industries and markets, including financial services, education, software, energy, healthcare, and life science. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. That's Y-E-G-I-I. Peter, how are you doing? Great, great. And how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to speak to you today. So Peter, um, you are no stranger to podcasts or to, uh, to the public eye. You've been in artificial general intelligence for a while now as the founder of a, of a couple of uh, interesting companies. And uh, the, the latest one being uh, iGo. I wanted to just ask you a little bit about your background because you have this quite interesting background uh, you know, for pursuing AI. You actually have built a company and then you're using a lot of your own kind of funds to to really build out a very special vision of of AI. Tell us a little bit about how you got there and what might be the most important influence that guides you and motivates you. You know, looking at your background, uh, you know, and and there's not an enormous amount to find about you previous to these uh, two companies, I guess. So maybe you could just outline a little bit for us your path, and then we can get to our current concern. Yes, certainly. So I started out um, being fascinated by electronics, and I got trained as an electronics engineer, started my own company, um, doing um, microcontrolled uh, systems for industrial applications. But then I fell in love with software, and my company changed from a hardware company into a software company. And I developed several software systems, including databases, programming languages, and an ERP software system that became quite successful. And that company grew rapidly from the garage to 400 people, and we did an IPO. That was super exciting. But, th- but that also, you know, gave me the flexibility when I exited the company to, to really pursue what I've been doing for the last uh, 20 plus years. And that is to figure out how we can build software that has some intelligence that can actually learn and reason and, you know, and not just rely on what the programmer thought of. Uh, you know, catering for and, and what what was it in your engineering background that that kind of forced that perspective on you, or would you say there was something that you kind of discovered uh, on on the way? Yeah, so I, I mean, the transition from hardware to software, um, I, I found designing hardware systems, microcontrollers, and so on, um, you know, quite fascinating. But when 
you know, when hardware became more programmable, when the first microprocessor really started becoming available and powerful, uh, you get this instant gratification. You know, you can sit down and write uh, write something, and in, in a few hours later, you actually can have some working program. Whereas with hardware, you design the, the circuit boards and you send them out for manufacture and, you know, it might take a few days or a week to come back and then assemble it and all that. So, you know, the excitement of working with software and the flexibility that you have was what really, really sold me um, on, on that and um, just how much you can achieve um, in, in a, you know, relatively short period of time. And it's sort of limitless, the complexity that, you know, and intelligence that you can build. But um, what struck me, you know, even though I was very proud of my own software that we built, uh, it was still dumb. You know, I mean, if, if I, you know, if the programmer didn't think of some uh, scenario, then it would just crash or come up with an error message or something. Uh, you couldn't teach the software. It wouldn't learn. It wouldn't adapt. It wouldn't reason. So, you know, when I had sort of the, the, the time on my hands to reflect on this, uh, it, it really, I, I really said, how can we solve that problem? How can we make software intelligent? Um, so I, I actually took off five years and studied intelligence very deeply, starting with epistemology, theory of knowledge. How do we know anything? You know, what is reality? What is our relationship to reality? How do children learn? Um, how's, how does our intelligence differ from animal intelligence? Uh, what do IQ tests measure? All of that. And that really laid I'm curious about yeah. that five-year process, and I'm slightly envious. It's, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people are envious to take out five years of their life, mid-career, I guess, to to study something ostensibly new um, and and at that depth. How did you go about studying intelligence? So you, I, you, you said epistemology and, you know, and consciousness and, and all these subjects, but did you do desk research? Did you interview experts in the field? Did you um, subscribe to newsletters? Did you go to libraries? What was your approach? Mainly reading. I, I, you know, I bought hundreds of books on, on the topic um, and just reading primarily. Um, I had a number of discussion groups as well, some that I started myself, others that I joined, sort of philosophy, psychology discussion groups and so on. And then I went to a lot of AI conferences as well, but that's sort of the other perspective. You know, on the one hand, there's the cognitive perspective, and then there's what people had actually done in, in the field of AI. And one of the because I don't have an academic background, um, I didn't automatically slot into the one of the two groups of AI, the one being the connectionist neural network group and the other one sort of, I guess, what's now called good old-fashioned or symbolic AI. And what really struck me is that these two groups, these two factions, were almost like religions. They didn't talk to each other. They couldn't relate to each other. And I found that really quite weird because I could often translate what the people in the symbolic camp would say into the, the connectionist uh, the, you know, domain and vice versa. So it, it's really integrating these many sources of, of information that, uh, that, that was, I think, essential to figuring out how to build an intelligent system. So I'd like to build this up a little slowly, and, and I'll get back in a second to these two camps that you characterize as connectionist and, and symbolic AI. But a little bit before that, for, well, first off, would you say which of the two traditions uh, kind of relate themselves at all to this cognitive tradition in, in psychology and philosophy? 
first uh, off. Yeah, in my mind, uh, they, they do both. Absolutely. Uh, they, they absolutely do. And I, I could probably illustrate that. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to sort of come across with, with a context that I take for granted, but um, concept formation is such a central part to intelligence, to human intelligence, uh, the ability for us to form new concepts on the fly and to use those concepts contextually Basically, you know, in so if we, we we talk about a giraffe or something, um, you know, we have a picture of a giraffe, how how tall it is, and you know what size it is, what uh, color it has. But then you just change the context a little bit, and you, you're now talking about toys, and suddenly we are able to take this concept of giraffe and uh, immediately contextualize it and say which of the um, attributes of giraffe are important um, once you have it in the domain of toys. Suddenly, the size is no longer important. In fact, you know it's going to be smaller. Um, the color actually isn't important because if you have a pink giraffe, hey, it's still a giraffe if it's a toy, you know, and and so on. Whereas if, if you saw a pink giraffe out in the wild, you would immediately think, well, okay, what happened? Did somebody play a joke there, or you know, is it fake mm-hmm. fake news, or what is it? You know. So yeah. it's it's a, the uh, the importance of concepts and 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 why I'm talking about concepts being so important. The um, the, the the thing that builds concept is really much more on the connectionist side, where you have where you're dealing with perception. You know, we're connectionist, and and now the the second wave deep learning, machine learning tries to sort of get into that domain, where you have a lot of um, raw information, perceptual information. Uh, that really serves as the input for building concepts. But the concepts themselves uh, absolutely need the symbolic anchor or the symbol to, uh, for us to be able to manipulate and to think about. So once we you know, try to even think in concepts, think conceptually, we're actually thinking in symbols sort of directly or indirectly. And of course, with language, we, you know, it's the symbols that are driving the, which concepts to activate and, and what context to activate. So I, I see both the symbolic side at sort of at the language level and then the connectionist side <clears throat> more at the, the perceptual, the input to forming, forming the concepts. But there are also many others, you know, sort of insights you, you get from both camps. Let's take a, a detour back a little bit. How do you define AI, as in just the plain concept of artificial intelligence, before we even get to right. what you're more known for, which is kind of artificial general intelligence, which which I understand you were part of uh, coining as a term. But let's go back to kind of what most people traditionally have understood with AI. Right. So that depends on how far back you go in the tradition. If you go back 60 odd years, when the, the term was first coined, uh, it was about building thinking machines, about building machines that can think and learn and reason the way humans do. That was the original vision, the original dream of AI. Uh, but and you know, and they thought they could crack it in you know a, a year or two. Um, Very and, optimistic. Yes, and it, it turned out, of course, to be much much harder. So what happened over the years? AI really turned into narrow AI. Uh, and, you know, pretty much anybody working in the field of AI and studying AI really is working in, na- in the field of narrow AI. And, you know, what that translates to is basically, you know, whether you go back to uh, Deep Blue the, becoming the, the chess world champion, 
you know, the symbolic uh, approach or whether you're talking about the um, machine learning, deep learning, um, narrow AI systems, you know, whether they're used for image recognition, categorization or, or whatever, it's narrow AI. It's basically, we have a particular problem a defined problem that we're trying to solve. And then the human in the loop, the programmer or the data scientist, uh, basically figures out how to use the tools, the various tools that we have uh, to create a program or a model uh, that will solve that problem. But it's really the external intelligence that's making this this work. There's not I get there's that, much but intelligence. I'm, I'm sensing from what you're saying that, you know, you're, you're, characterizing it as narrow AI, but what's wrong with narrow AI? Because oh. I'm, I'm sensing a kind of a pejorative slant. When you talk about it, you think of it as something negative. And a lot of people are extremely excited about AI these days, although there are some signs now that, you know, people are hedging their bets and saying, well, you know, it can't accomplish everything and, uh, and all that stuff. But narrow AI is already is already a negative statement, I guess, or is it more of a descriptive statement for you? Um. Well, I think if you picked up that I'm a little negative about it is, uh, I, I think that's true, but that's maybe my personal quirk or history, um, you know, when, when people talk about AI uh, and they, they kind of really... So they're conflating it for you. They, they, they're I, kind of, they're conflating the term for you because yeah. narrow, what I, I guess what I'm picking up on is w when you say narrow AI, I'm sensing that you don't even really think that they're doing intelligence in a certain sense. Correct. Exactly. There's the int it, and that I think is a very important distinction that the intelligence is external to the program or the model to a large extent. That the key intelligence, the key thing that solves the problem is the programmer or the data scientist. Uh, whereas real AI, and in fact, that's the original term that I wanted to use when we wrote the book on artificial general intelligence, but it was a little bit too much in your face, you know, for, for an academic uh, publication. So we, we decided artificial general intelligence uh, is, is the term to use in 2001 when we coined the, uh, the, the term. So, uh, yeah, whether it's prerogative or not, uh, um, it's, um, it, it clearly is extremely useful. Uh, but I think yeah. it's the, the thing that worries me that a, it's people have really forgotten about the original what the original meaning of the term of AI was because it clearly was about building thinking machines, and that seems to have been forgotten, um, and and that people don't make that distinction that they believe in my mind incorrectly so that if we have enough error, narrow AIs and we throw them together we'll we'll actually have human level intelligence and. I think nothing could be further from the truth. So let's let's go back in, in time for a second. So the summer of 1956, there's a conference in New England that's been uh, you know presented as kind of the beginning of AI mm -hmm. with a, a lot of notable experts from around the world. But notably, it was arranged by uh, a couple of professors, uh, I guess, at, at, at MIT, uh, certainly uh, leading the way. And in the decade that followed, and in fact, for the next few decades, arguably... It was this kind of expert systems, rule-based AI. At least uh, that's what I've understood as kind of a main thread in, in kind of what most people would consider the first wave of AI. Why did that period last so long? Some people will say that it's basically around 1989 is the cutoff from 
when this next stage, which you know currently what you 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 called it connectionist, and you know it has a, it's more of a statistical approach, definitely. And and let's get to that. You know, where is really the difference between statistics in that sense, and, and when you get to these more deeper learning systems? But first off, why did this first phase of AI take so immensely long time? So you you mentioned they said we can solve it in a couple of years. What was the big problem that took 30 years? Well, I mean, a lot longer than 30 years because um, now, you know, 60 years later, uh, we still don't uh, have, a, you know, the, the sort of the majority of people working in AI by far still don't have really any idea how to solve AI. And, and in fact, most AI experts agree with that, you know, that, uh, I mean, take... Um, them Sasabis of, of, you know, the founder and uh, CEO of DeepMind, uh, their mission is to solve intelligence. And, you know, they have a substantial budget. Uh, I mean, what, 600 odd PhD level researchers working on the problem. And yet they freely admit that all the work they're doing now is not going to get them to intelligence. And they don't really have a clear path. Uh, in, in it's not going to get them to intelligence, but surely they are building blocks towards something. Wouldn't you agree? Um, or would, no, are they building blocks on some in some different direction? I think it's a dead end. That, those are that's a pretty powerful statement, Peter. How are you so convinced that it's a dead end? Because there there are some people who do, who agree with you, but it is a very extreme position to consider basically everything that's happened from 1990 until largely now as a complete dead end that's uh you're convicting a lot of uh, professors and uh, and industry professionals with that statement yes um i i am <laughs> um and i think the starting point is really you have to understand what intelligence is you know in the context of ai and what are the essential attributes of intelligence and and here we're talking about the kind of intelligence that the founders of, you know, the, the 60 years ago of what people were talking about, systems that can learn and reason, um, that, that have deep understanding, that can learn and can, can reason uh, in the real world. Uh, I, I don't see really any, uh, you know, any of the, the sort of main efforts addressing those requirements uh, at all. Um, you know, it's just, they just, you know, this, there's so much money to be made. There's such a momentum and deep learning, machine learning right now, and it's so useful in so many areas that that's where all the all the money goes. That's where all the development goes. And you know, just to give you one uh, tiny example that I think is very representative of of what I'm talking about is uh, we had a brilliant intern from Germany work on our system on our cognitive architecture, third wave of AI. Um, and, you know, he totally got it. He, you know, was a brilliant guy. He went back to Germany to do his PhD. He couldn't find a sponsor for anything cognitive. So he ended up doing his PhD in deep learning, machine learning. You know, it's, it's the only game in town. So, uh, yeah. So, I, so let me uh, read you a quote from, from a, uh, a guy that I uh, respect highly uh, mm-hmm. at MIT, which is uh, near where, where I uh, worked for m- many years. So he says, this is Neil Gershenfeld. He says, there are three specific areas having to do with the mind, the memory, and the body where AI research has become stuck. Programmers, uh, Computers are programmed by writing a sequence of lines of code, but the mind doesn't work that way. Uh, because in the mind, everything happens everywhere all the time. 
is that the problem that they have been trying to solve a problem that isn't actually to do with the mind? Or is it even a larger problem than that in your eyes? Yes, I think that that would be, uh, I I think that description resonates with me. It's understanding what the mind does, what the mental processes do, uh, and clearly turning them into code. I, I absolutely believe that we can turn them into code, but it has to be the kind of code that can, uh, and I don't want to say self-modify because it's uh, that's kind of a slight mischaracterization. I don't believe the, the right the, the, the right myth- methodology is to have a system that writes new code, and and some people you know have tried that. But it's more that your your mental processes are executed in in a way in a in a neural network uh, kind of way, but that that neural network can learn and adapt instantaneously. And I think that's that's what what's what's really missing. As you know, I say the key requirements of real intelligence of, you know, fluid intelligence, human level intelligence is that we learn instantaneously. And I, I can, you know, give one or two uh, e- examples here. I mean, if I say, you know, just six words, uh, you know, my sister's cat Spock is pregnant. I see, if I say that to a five-year-old child, it will immediately understand five or six facts from that. I understand Peter's talking. I have a sister. My sister has a cat. Cat's name is Spock. You might think it's male. And, you know, then you find us pregnant, you now know as female. And you have that information available immediately for whatever follows the next sentence. You know, she's really big or you might ask, you know, when will the kittens arrive or whatever. Um, yep. So it's, it's the ability to learn instantaneously, to form new concepts instantaneously, to be able to reason about things. Um, those are essential characteristics for uh, it, for intelligent systems. And if your approach, if your architecture doesn't allow for those, you're in a dead end. So, so let me probe on that a little bit. One of the things that is extremely in fashion right now, and you were alluding to it, the whole notion of a neural network is, of course, a metaphor because what it currently means in AI is not a neural network. It means the metaphor or what they think brain researchers have figured out about the brain implied and, you know, operationalized into some software. Isn't that right? So the whole idea of a brain metaphor in the second wave of AI, what do you, what do you make of that? Right. Uh, I mean, deep learning, machine learning. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's a metaphor because you don't really see, um, neurons and uh you know it's it's basically just mathematics <laughs> you know uh, yep. th- that is expressed in but i think it is an extremely useful metaphor and and i it certainly helped me to de- design the system uh and and that you have you know spreading activation for example you know you have a a certain concept that that is currently active and what are the things related to that concept that sort of come to mind that that need to be activated? So uh, I think neural networks uh, are a very good model for thinking about uh, the, the mind. But again, it's not one or the other. It's sort of the, the you know, language is, is really much more on the symbolic side, but the symbols don't work in isolation. The symbols, in fact, represent um, areas of activation. So uh, 
But beyond the brain, then, there's also a, a train of thought, definitely, well, it's more of a, an undercurrent, I guess, in uh, the psychology of perception that now has come a little bit more to the surface. And, and these guys are talking about embodied perception and, and going beyond the, the brain to look for inputs for our, for our knowledge. And some of those are, are doing experiments in visual Cognition and and memory. Uh, some of them are also neuroscientists, but they're they're actually venturing outside of the traditional territory of the brain to look at how our body and a much larger set of our nervous system works. Also outside of at least the brain as kind of a container of all that activity. Is is that at all what's implied in some of what we're going to talk about in a second? This third wave, or would you still consider any considerations? That have to do with uh, uh, with those concepts with within the earlier uh, metaphors. I mean, the earlier sort of waves of AI. Right. Um, th- yeah, this is quite a complex question, and and sort of it, it relates to how much grounding uh, do you, do your concept needs? Uh, how much uh, real grounding, you know, perceptual grounding, do they need, as opposed to what you could read up in books or what you could mm-hmm. learn or download or whatever, and you know, I don't have a clear answer of how little you can get away with. Um, certainly having, say, a robotic system, whether it's a physical robot or a robot in a virtual environment that can, you know, sense the environment and use that input to, to build a model of the world, to build concepts. Um, right. I, I, I think sounds like a really good approach to me. The, and in fact, we started off when we started doing our initial experiments as exactly how we started off. But it turned out that that's, actually really, really hard and slow, uh, starting with perception. If you start with physical robots, you spend 99% of your time messing with hardware. Oh, I don't disagree. I think it's hard. But I think even even in in terms of the way humans learn, I mean, you know, if you're trying to reproduce how humans learn and you're not taking the body into account, you're discounting a large part of our sensory apparatus. Right, right. So I, I, I agree that, you know, it had, there are different advantages to that, but then the actual experiments we did and the path we followed over the last, you know, 15 plus years has really um, been with, without having that, that input and really starting at the language level. And yeah. part of that is uh, a practical consideration. As I say it's just really, really hard to make progress with physical robots and uh, virtual reality or virtual, um, you know, virtual robotics um, is really still struggling to to work well as well. You know, so it, it has also severe limitations. And so we started with language and use it as a scaffolding, essentially, uh, with with you know minimal external inputs. Now, my theoretical justification for for that is um, why you know why I'm okay with that is. Um, and this is not a complete, uh, you know, so complete justification, but, um, what I call the, the Helen Hawking model of, of, uh, AI. And what I mean by that, sort of think of Helen Keller on the one hand, you know, a blind and deaf. And, uh, yet she was, you know, perfectly intelligent. Um, in fact, it's absolutely fascinating reading her autobiography. And the instance in her life, it was actually one instance in her life where she felt she changed from an animal existence to a human existence. 
when mentally she had the breakthrough of understanding what concepts are. And, and I found that absolutely fascinating and, and extremely instructive. Uh, but why call it Helen Hawking? And then you get Stephen Hawking, who has very little, uh, you know, dexterity. So clearly you can be very intelligent with very limited uh, sense acuity and dexterity. Uh, or if you take this a step further and talk about a, a brain in a vat, let's take a person who already grew up in, in the world uh, but becomes totally paralyzed and let's say even you take it to the extreme that it's a brain in the vat, but it's a person that has all, does already have all the knowledge. It, it's kind of a, a, a proof of concept that once you have the information in the brain that you've got through the senses, you can then function uh, in, intelligently. Um, so it's how do we get that information into, into well, artificial well, and brain? That's, I guess, what we're going to talk about because the third wave of, of AI and the way I understand you define it and, and you, you explain it to me, in, in some ways it started a long time ago, right? I mean, some people trace it back to kind of 2000, 2001. And for you, it almost goes as far back as that when you really started your explorations. Define this third wave of AI for us. So you have called it artificial general intelligence. You have explained to me that it has to do with some sort of linguistic awareness. Um, to that, I just have the question. I mean, even Marvin Minsky, one of the, I believe, participants in that 1956 seminar and a, a kind of a, a legacy at MIT for, for kind of having had a role in co-founding both uh, the, the C-Sale, you know, uh, artificial intelligence lab and the MIT Media Lab being very central there, he already had a very strong linguistic uh, body of work. I have a couple of those books just lying around right here, and I was just browsing through them in preparation for our, our, our chat. He is very much on board with this idea, and in fact, he created several data sets that became the backbone of some part of this idea of we actually need to understand language before we understand anything else. And we need to teach computers real language. But explain to us what you saw lacking in, in the second approach that now is slowly, because I understand it's a long process, slowly being fixed by rebuilding and, and basically getting at this from, from scratch, teaching computers language, essentially. Tell us... Tell us how you went about it, what your initial thinking was in terms of how you were going to build that process and what, it, what do you do day to day with your team? All right. Uh, quite, a, quite a few different things here. So uh, yeah. first, first of all, um, I'd I just like to clarify what, what I mean by AGI, Artificial General Intelligence. Uh, so um, I had already finished my five years of research uh, in 2001. And I got together with a few other people that kind of had the same idea that the time is ripe for us to get back to the original dream of AI to build thinking machines. Um, so we got together in 2001 and, and uh, three of us coined the term artificial general intelligence as a title for a book that we, we wrote. Uh, who, who was that, by the way, your three, uh, uh, yeah, the three it's, friends? Um, it's Ben Goetzel uh, and yep. Shane Legg, um, who's one of the founders of DeepMind. Um, Shane was actually working for, for my company at the time. Um, so um, 
So, so artificial general intelligence does not specifically focus on language, was not necessarily prerequisite for, for AGI. And uh, the reason I say that is while AGI clearly aims at human level intelligence, uh, yeah. I believe there's a lot of good work you could do uh, at the, the level of animal intelligence, sort of the... Um, proto-concepts that we have. Animals can form simple concepts that are directly grounded in, in experience. Um, if you built a system that had animal-level intelligence, but of the right kind, where the animal can learn interactively from the environment, I mean, think about uh, a dog or a chimpanzee or you know some higher-level animal. If you could build a system that had this general ability to, to learn um, in, in, in the wild, I believe you'd be extremely close to having human level intelligence. I think it would be trivial to upgrade the system then to human level intelligence. So it's really that the key, the cornerstones or the, the key keystones for uh, what intelligence entails, you know, the ability to, to, to learn and reason in real time um, and to, to adapt, to use context and, and, and so on. So, so artificial general intelligence, AGI, is really more about the generality that we get away from the programmer deciding, what do I want this AI to do? Um, you know, do I want it to optimize container packaging or traffic control or, you know, medical diagnosis and, and then using their, their intelligence to basically write some code or to, to build a model to get away from that. But the Peter, all, of, all of those ambitions, aren't those actually the things that people are this, the most scared about? I mean, this, I mean, what you're talking about here is, I guess, both the biggest dream of, of, of Ben Gertzel and, and, and people like that, but, and, and perhaps yourself, but it's also what people fear the most about AI. It's very paradoxical. So what you're dreaming of here is, is basically Elon Musk and uh, Stephen Hawking's and, and a lot of people's biggest fear. So wh why would you try to dedicate your life to create what some people are the scare, you know, scare, really, really scared about? Well, I, I, I think they have come to the wrong conclusions about AI. Um, so I don't, I don't, I see the opposite. And of course, that's a whole uh, another discussion. I'd like to answer some of the other things you, you, because yeah, yeah, of course. Once we go down, down that road. So m the conclusion I've come to is that we, the human race, actually needs AI uh, to help us um, cope with with basically modern life, that we don't seem to be doing a great job of that. And we actually need more intelligence. We need AGI to help us solve a whole lot of problems that we have. And Which problems in particular? Because that would clarify things for me. What kinds of problems do you hope to solve? Well, um, probably at the... I would put governance as the first thing. Um, we're not very good at managing our affairs, um, and you know, with without getting into a political hot potato. But I, I'm I'm willing to risk there if if I make the statement that you know, if Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were the absolutely best two people to you know be the leaders of of the free world, whatever that means. Um, that that seems that something is amiss with the the system. Are you talking about the selection of leaders or the mental faculties of leaders once they are 
elected and and kind of you're talking about some sort of complement to the advisory roles that are yeah, the, the whole necessarily advising both presidential candidates and and clearly also advising pre- presidents and, and statesmen well actually advising voters more than anything advising else. voters yeah got it yeah uh, i mean that that's kind of the um yeah so, so yeah, I think governance is one of them. But then, you know, you 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 look at obviously um, things that concern us about energy, about pollution, about climate change, uh, but also you know disease. I mean, let's look at where we are right now with COVID. Certainly, bringing more intelligence to this problem should be a good thing. Uh, in fact, I think we may find that that we need it. Okay, so I think the research agenda now is clearer to me. Um, how have you gone about it? That was one of the embedded nested questions in, mm-hmm. in my long kind of soliloquy there. How right. have you gone about it? So you, you told us about your first five years. You studied a lot of different cognition and consciousness. And then what was your first step after that? Right. So in 2001, I then started my first AI company and hired about a dozen people. What and, was this called? Um, Adaptive AI Inc. Yep. A2I2. Yep. Yep. In fact, I see there's just a new company that, or uh, some university that uses A2I2. <laughs> uh, but yeah, A2I2 is the first company. And for about five years, we just built various prototypes and to sort of basically to turn my ideas into actual working systems, into working code. And I said, we actually started off with an animal model um because that kind of made most theoretical sense that the system would learn through interacting with the environment we upgraded that animal model from from a mouse to uh, a dog and then we decided that uh, a child would actually be better and then we finally decided all things considered that working con- concentrating on uh, adult level uh, language was was actually the way we would make the fastest progress and quite frankly, to have something that we could commercialize, because while I'm, you know, I made a fair amount of money out of, out of the IPO that I did, it wasn't enough for me to, um, you know, indefinitely fund the company, and I could only afford really to have a group of ten people. And I don't think AGI will be solved by uh, by a group of uh, of ten. So, uh, so, so, it, so interesting. So, but, so, but have you had a group of 10 essentially working on this since 2001? Have you steadily had yes. a group of 10? Yes, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's an independent question, but 10 people is for some startups, a lot of people. So presumably you, you could accomplish a lot, but it, it depends what you're trying to do. If you're just trying to sell an e-commerce project, I can, uh, you know, a product, I can tell you 10 right. people, you should, you should get pretty far. Right, but for the kind of task that you're doing, I mean, where, where is the energy spent, and where, where have yeah. have you spent the the uh, you know the bulk of the time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we're doing is is uncharted territory. You know, it's not just a matter of picking up things off the shelf and plugging them together and you know building a product. Uh, I mean, to get a sense of that, you could yeah. I mean, DeepMind has 600 PhD level people working on it, and you could ask how much has really been achieved there, you know, and, and, and well, are they working on the same thing though, Peter? That's no, no, not, at, not at all. I'm just saying generally working on, uh, I mean, they, they, well, they are in a way they, they are actually working on the same. They're trying to solve intelligence, which is what, what we are doing. Uh, they're just using a different approach. So, you know, it, it clearly is very difficult and it's, um, 
you know, it's so much along the way has to be invented. You know, the tools that we use, how we train the system, how we test it, um, even figuring out what kind of people are the right people to work on the project, what kind of skills you need, training up those, mm. those, uh, those people. And then, you know, you train up somebody for two years, three years, and then the kind of smart people we have will decide, well, actually, I love this project, but I really, I really need to go back and finish my PhD because I promised myself that, you know, and so you, you, you I'm curious. I mean, there's some details here that you're not sort of disclosing about, you know, the details of, of what you guys are working on, which I, I can appreciate. But on the other hand, isn't there something to do with, I mean, crowdsourcing has also become really popular during this period when you have been working on this. Right. Wouldn't there have been, or isn't there still a way that one could make progress and, and are, and is anybody trying to make progress on AGI by using more of a crowdsourced approach? Because surely if some of these things are modular, that's of course the only way that you can use crowdsourcing is if some of the tasks are modular. And, and to the degree they're not, of course you're in trouble because you need to integrate all right. of it at, at every point of right. time. And in that point, you know, it doesn't matter if you have 600 or, or, or 10 people, at some point you just need to sit down and, and kind of right. make an integration. So what kind of a problem is yeah, this? Yeah, you, you, um, so to give you a quick answer, uh, yes, it is a highly integrated system. And in fact, I, could, I can use that answer to also explain a little bit more about what the third wave of AI is. And I have a slightly different timeline from the one you, you mentioned, is I think symbolic AI really was the, you know, the king until probably eight, nine years ago, because neural networks had not really worked that well in, in, you know, they'd been very limited. Most of, most AI projects were really uh, symbolic sort of first wave. Uh, and people had actually written off uh, neural nets, you know, connectionist approaches to a large extent uh, until the breakthroughs we had about eight, nine years ago. Um, yeah, yeah. I was putting the whole statistical approach uh, into that bucket. So it oh, was a right. double bucket. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. yeah. No, right, right. You're, no, no, completely right. in line with, I understand. I mean, d deep learning as such, I completely agree with right. you. That, that's a whole, yeah. so if we call just that, a decade. Yeah, if we call that the second wave, then that's only, you know, nine, nine years old or so. So right. what, what the third wave is, and, and, and DARPA, you know, DARPA uh, came up with these terms, first, second, and third wave that I'm using here. They've given certain presentations. And their description of, of third wave is focusing on adaptive, you know, that the system is adaptive. It can learn in real time and 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 things of, of and and can reason. Um, and the way I I tend to describe it from a practical point of view, it's a cognitive architecture. Um, and by cognitive architecture, I basically mean you start off by saying, what does intelligence require? What does general intelligence require? And then you make sure that the architecture that you have uh, has the components that will give you these, that will meet these requirements. Now, cognitive architectures have actually been around for, for quite a few decades in, in universities. Sure. Um, and you know, but what are some examples of other cognitive architectures that or that you're building on in order to get this um, done? Well, we we actually not building on any of of the existing ones, and um, you know, there's a list of thirty or forty of them that have you know uh, been around. I I actually don't remember what they are. But I mean, Ben Goetzel has 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 one with you know OpenCog, um, and um, yeah, they've they've been. Um, you know, they've, they've, they've been uh, a number, but they're sort of in the same place where, 
neural nets were nine years ago where people say, well, hey, we've tried this for decades and it hasn't worked, you know? Well, yep. yeah, it doesn't work until it works, you know? Um, and in neural... Yeah, I mean, that's every innovator's tr trouble, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you look very dumb until you look very smart. Right. And with, yeah. with, you know, with deep learning, machine learning, it was basically just suddenly we had enough training data, we had enough computing power and a few tweaks to the algorithm. And, you know, suddenly deep learning, machine learning was just incredibly powerful and successful. And I mean, it's now the only game in town. Now, machine learning to get back to the, the sort of integration or how modular it is, um, using... <clears throat> building, why haven't cognitive architectures worked? Well, there, there, there are a couple of reasons, and I would say three reasons that I'd like to cite. Um, the one of them is exactly all the cognitive architectures out there other than our own uh, use a very modular approach because that's a, you know, it's a sensible engineering approach to use. You have something modular, it's much easier to debug and you can use different components. So it makes sense to, to have a modular thing, but the, the brain, the mind can't actually work that way effectively. And I'll unpack that a little bit. Uh, so what people might do is say, okay, we need a parser. What's the best parser? We'll use a Stanford parser. You know, that's great. Okay, yep. now we need some kind of a, um, a knowledge graph to represent the knowledge that we have. So what's a good a graph database? And they'll pick a graph database and plug that in. And then, okay, we need a reasoning engine. Um, but having these components, these separate components that weren't designed to really work together in any way, you have this horrible impedance mismatch. They, they simply cannot work effectively uh, together. So uh, the, the, the fact that people have, you know, had modular architectures is, is exactly one of the things that I see as why it hasn't worked up to now. The second thing is the knowledge graphs that are being used, if you use an external a graph database, you have a tremendous uh, performance penalty. So we've developed our own graph database that's fully integrated with all of the other components, all of the components we developed ourselves so that they can work together synergistically. And the graph database that we have is two orders of magnitude faster than any graph uh, database, commercial graph database, so, you know, 100 times faster. So if, you know, you have a one-second response time on our system, that would be 100 seconds. And, you know, that just pushes it outside of the, the realm of being practical or useful or even being able to do uh, experiments with it. So it, the modular, the performance of the graph database, those are two sort of technical reasons of why they haven't, haven't worked. And the third one is, is, is basically sort of an accident of history that machine learning, deep learning has been so incredibly successful in the last, you know, eight, nine years it sucked all the oxygen out of the air. So basically nobody ca can work on cognitive architectures unless they're bloody-minded like I am and have enough funds to pursue it. Hmm. Well, so let me ask you this question. You are very optimistic that AGI is going to solve a lot of great problems. If you take Ray Kurzweil, who, I mean, he's like a mix of an optimist and a and a realist in my mind, right? Singularity is near, he wrote in 2005 and says that between 2015 and 2045, and you know, he's already five years expired, you know, there's a f X percentage chance that singularity will arrive. And, and, and what does singularity mean? And do you relate at all to that concept? 
Well, it's always a difficult topic because, you know, you end up making a lot of enemies or you're written off as a kook if you start talking about it. But, uh, well, feel free to say that you refuse to acknowledge the term, but I'm just curious because, you know, you are one of the few people that uses the word AGI. So I have to be able to ask you about singularity, which is quite related. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm willing to step into that. Uh, step into that uh, water. Um, so yes, I, to me, the singularity uh, is not that we will have infinite, infinitely growing intelligence, but the singularity to me is a very important point at which AI becomes capable enough to improve its own design. So it's basically when I, as an AI designer, become obsolete. Um, so when my AI, when my AI is basically better at improving its design than, than, you know, my, but my, it's still my team in is. your mind, a fairly limited design in the sense that it's not going to be a generic, you know, some sort of self reproducing type of thing. Right. I think what, what Kurzweil has in mind and definitely what, uh, Bostrom has, has adopted in his book, super intelligence, right. To talk about two people who. Who are concerned about this singularity type uh, superintelligence thing um, is some sort of generic uh, machine-like uh, technological growth that just the moment it passes us just will radically outpace us and be irreversible and resulting in unforeseen and unquestionably negative changes to human civilization just because we can't control it yeah so yeah i think there are a lot of uh, different things sort of packed together and um i do believe that uh, once we reach that level there will be a very rapid increase in intelligence and of course you can't put the genie in in, back in the bottle in fact you can't put the genie back in the bottle right now unless we have a complete breakdown of civilization we are going to get human level ai uh, and once we get human level AI, we will get superhuman level AI because AI will be better at being able to design itself, improve itself than, than we are. So, but, but Peter, I mean, the counter argument has always been that in some people's mind that if you look at human AI, I mean, if you look at human intelligence, it varies a lot. And between every uh, Stephen Hawking and any, every polymath out there and even every good artist, there's uh, thousands and thousands of bad artists. Why is uh, this like, why is there a perception that even the variability within human intelligence is so large? Why, uh, you know, what kind of point are we really talking about? Because are we talking about the average human intelligence? Or are you saying it doesn't really matter once we get into the vicinity of human intelligence, it'll immediately spike up? Yeah, I don't think it really, uh, it, it really matters too much. Um, so at that point, you know, between Trond and Peter and Einstein, the, the point is the machine doesn't care because that's kind of like a, that's a bleep, that's a week's work basically for a machine uh, when it gets to that uh, level. Correct, because uh, I mean, I do agree that there's a variability in, in human intelligence, um, but there's also the whole issue of motivation, access to knowledge, and, you know, yeah, motivation and having access to knowledge. And those are, of course, very much controlled in an AI. It will have access to all the knowledge you want to give it. It will have maximum motivation because we'll be 
building it to have maximum motivation. It's not just going to goof off, you know, it's not going to get interested in, you know, girl AIs or boy AIs or whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's not going to have those kind of distractions that we as humans uh, tend to have where many brilliant minds, you know, could have achieved a lot more intellectually or, or building companies or whatever if they hadn't, if they focused better, you know, or had access to better funds or um, more better information, you know. I mean, if you look at all, all the very smart people in uh, underdeveloped worlds, um, parts of the world, um, they could probably do a lot better if they had access to better infrastructure. So, uh, yeah, I, I... Well, but let me let me just stop you there for a second, because isn't there also some sort of machine-based groupthink somewhere in the system where you can get stuck in machine loops where the machine actually doesn't make real progress? It just starts calculating things that are meaningless in terms of making real progress. Is that not even... I mean, that surely at this stage of AI, that that must be be happening. I mean, it's not just a, a, an ever-increasing, increasing... increasing Instead of capacity for for calculations within very organized domains, I understand it's almost linear. Mm. But for for the kinds of breakthroughs you're talking about, how can it? Uh, you're just saying at some point, once you've mapped the system, it ceases to be linear. Uh, yes, because uh, it, it, the human will no longer be in the loop to improving its uh, it, its intelligence. I mean, at the moment, you know, the, the work we're doing, we are slowly cranking up the capabilities, the IQ of, of, of our system. But the, the process that is involved there is, you know, we, we, we work and then we have to go and sleep and we have weekends and we have other things that, that happen. And, you know, how smart is your system now, Peter? Um, if you compare it to human intelligence, a uh, hundred is a, uh, you know, yeah. not so good, right? 120. Now you're a, you know, now you should be getting a PhD, but uh, w w yeah. where is your system? So um, w what we usually say in our, in our sales spiel is, you know, if, if Siri and Alexa had an IQ of 10, uh, we're at 25. So we are still a long, long way from human level intelligence. But the real question is, does our architecture, our approach allow us to go from 25 to 30 to 35 to 40 and, you know, so on? I believe it does. Um, so yes, we're a long way in our, in our own design from, from, you know, being at an IQ of a hundred, but, uh, and, you know, of course, machine IQ is going to be quite different from human IQ. Uh, machines are going to be, um, much better at, 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 at things, you know, even when we, what we might call an overall level of 60, it will already be, you know, 200 in some, some domains. And, and well, exactly, because yeah. it's domain specific, right? So it can be, I mean, it's already what you call narrow AI is extremely Correct. useful in some domains. Correct. And superhuman. Yeah. And superhuman. Uh, it's, it's very. Correct. So, but it's really when it becomes, uh, we're not at a point where our system can hit the books, you know, read Wikipedia and really make sense of it. I mean, uh, just, you know, scanning Wikipedia and creating a whole lot of, uh, uh, you know, bits of information, atoms of information out of Wikipedia is not understanding Wikipedia. Understanding Wikipedia would be to really uh, read every sentence and integrate it into your knowledge graph in a way that can actually be used. Um, and, you know, once you get to that sort of level, that doesn't require a lot of additional coaching and question answering where basically the human, human isn't that much in the loop. And this is where crowdsourcing could also certainly help because mm. 
you know, if, if Igo or whatever, you know, AI gets to a point where it can actually read Wikipedia, for example, well enough that it can actually ask intelligent questions of people out there in the world and can say, I don't understand that. Can you explain this to me? Or what does this actually mean? You know, where else, what else do I need to read up in order to understand? So that's kind of a test that you're hoping to, to pass with your system at some point, this Wikipedia test. And is that more relevant than kind of a Turing test? And, you know, I don't know if all my listeners are fully aware of what a Turing test is, but uh, you know, what, what, how relevant is a Turing test and how, you know, what do you see as yeah. kind of the so, today? What is a meaningful Turing test, which is a, a, a test that was kind of theorized about the, what, what would, how you would distinguish computer and, and human. And, you know, right. essentially a good computer would be able to fool, uh, fool a human about being human. That would be a, you know, then you right, right. Yeah. Ask the Turing test. Right. Yeah. I've actually written about the Turing test and, uh, in, in short, I think it asks both too much and too little in different ways. Uh, it, it asks too much in that it's supposed to have all the nuances of a human on how the experience we have growing up as children and so on. And it's supposed to have all of that kind of knowledge and the emotional um, sort of infra architecture, infrastructure or whatever that humans have, which I think is asking way too much uh, to say is a system machine intelligence. But it asks too little in the sense that all it has to do is fool enough of the judges. So if it becomes really good at fooling judges, and this is basically how the Turing test competitions have really been run, is how can we fool the judges in the, in, in the, you know, and this is using external human intelligence to build a system that's good at fooling judges, like mm. the one supposedly, um, um, AI that passed the Turing test a few years ago, you know, we had fooled the judge mm. by saying, hey, I'm just a little foreign young kid or whatever, and I don't really understand yeah. language too well. And and the judges were fooled. And they said, oh, yeah, I think this is a human. So, Peter, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, group of people within AI that are working on natural language processing or NLP. Is that within this third wave and are they related to the kinds of things you're doing? I'm just trying to get a sense of who else are actually contributing to this quest that you're on. I mean, is the NLP field uh, no. working on language in the way that you are talking about it? No, not, not, not really. Uh, not, not at all. Again, a lot of the uh, NLP, NLU, you know, those, those terms uh, I mean, NLU talking about natural language understanding, really today, if you look at industry and go to conferences, what people really refer to uh, is kind of a stimulus response. You know, can it identify the intent correctly? Um, but there isn't really any deep understanding in, in, any, in, in any sense. So, again, most of the work that's being done is, is basically big data Um approaches, statistical approaches. And I, I don't see, I'm not seeing really anything that that's particularly useful for um, mm. third wave cognitive architectures, AGI. Mm. Talk to us a little bit more about the use case that you're building. So your company, Igo, sometimes it's described as a chatbot. And definitely you're operating in the landscape of conversational AI somehow. What is a chatbot in, in, in your mind? Right. Uh, I struggled a lot to, uh, to decide whether we would call it a chatbot or not, because we obviously don't think it's a chatbot as people understand it. 
And in my previous AI company, I had the same struggle. Uh, the previous company is Smart Action. That's the first generation of our technology. Uh, I launched that company in 2008. And there we were targeting what is called IVR, interactive voice response or automated phone systems. And, uh, you know, people hate these IVR things. You get to it and have to press one this or, you know, they're just really annoying. So, yeah. so we ended up, when we told people, no, ours isn't an IVR, we couldn't get our customers to understand what we're talking about. So, we so then you had to kind of put yourself in, in the category of an Alexa, Google Home, a Siri, yeah. a Google so, Assistant, so, Microsoft Cortana. These are the chatbots that correct. people know. Yeah. And then there's uh, unknown smaller startups, but... But you're attaching yourself onto that label. Correct. So, so, so that people are sort of, oh, okay, I know roughly what you're talking about. So in the IVR space, we ended up branding it as an IVR with a brain. And we're basically doing the same thing now. We're saying it's a chatbot with a brain or a cognitive chatbot. Um, basically, none of these chatbots, whether it's Siri, Cortana, or you know, what, whatever, have a brain. They basically don't have, they don't learn interactively. They don't have reasoning ability. Um, you know, they don't have deep understanding, so they don't have a brain. And how can the market assessment be so huge then? I mean, I think you put on your website that the market for chatbots is around a hundred billion dollars. I don't know where that where you got that from, but and and there's like I, I found some sort of sixty chatbot companies doing, you know, on one list online. So there's there are a lot of people building companies in this rough space. What is the fascination around chatbots and what what can one reasonably expect chatbots to achieve in the next even just the next decade um well if they're cognitive chatbots a lot uh, <laughs> all right they, so tell if, us about if that they, if they have a brain you can achieve a lot um now so tell us about some of the things that you think that you will solve right with with, with igo yeah so you know things that we are solving and and will solve increasingly well um uh our, you know our conversations and I'll, I'll give a few examples here so uh one of them would be for example to help a person manage their diabetes or whatever condition that they have that you can actually have a conversation whereas right now uh you might have a human coach that you can only speak to once a week because they're expensive uh but with igo you can have a conversation every day um about you know your food choices and how you're feeling and you know whether you should do this or that. So while the the cognitive ability is general, the knowledge base is narrow, and we have to do that right now uh, because getting the right background knowledge, getting the common sense background knowledge in any domain, is actually very hard. It's a very costly exercise. So for us to, you know, as a small company to be able to get common sense knowledge across the board, you know, on anything, ballet and sports and movies and uh, all the different professions you have is, is just computationally not, costly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just too expensive. So we, we're concentrating on applications that do require this learning ability. So if you tell your cognitive assistant that, you know, you're going to be on vacation, uh, you're going, you know, someplace on vacation and can you get your medication there or, you know, what, you know, what, whatever it might be that if you, if you're using it for diabetes management, um, or who should you inform, you know, if something happens or, or whatever it might be. Another example is, uh, we, we're using IGO as a, 
assistant for salespeople. Salespeople are notoriously bad at using Salesforce um, because, you know, it's just... Well, I can understand why I have okay. <laughs> I have struggled myself. Right. And if, you know, if you can use iGo to just talk to iGo and, and say, and when we talk chatbot, you know, this, this also includes voice interaction. And this is what makes the market obviously even, even much bigger. But if you can talk to iGo and say, hey, tell me about my next appointment, you know, uh, what, are, what, in, what product is he interested in? Does he have any hobbies? Does, you know... Does he have any kids or whatever you want to talk about, chit-chat with, with your, your prospect, with your client? And then when you're done, you can say, I go set this to high priority, remind me next Monday to follow up, send them brochure X and uh, let my and boss know. And to what extent I, are, is Igo, your product, doing this with clients, helping clients on these particular two challenges right now? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked the question because... We actually just got off the phone earlier today that we have a very, very large client that we uh, expect to go live with this week. Uh, it's in the e-commerce space, and it's basically an, an, a personalized assistant that helps you interact your, your e-commerce. Um, we have actually developed a, a prototype on the sales assistant for one of our clients and, mm -hmm. you know, working, working with them. Um, so... Yeah, we have a number of, of, of these. Uh, another application is we're working with a company that does um, VR training. They train salespeople and HR people in a virtual environment, but they need a cognitive engine to actually have meaningful conversations, you know, with, uh, sure. with that. So there are just a ton of applications uh, for conversational AI. You... I think you told me 10 people and somewhere online it says that you guys have 15 people. But regardless, how many people are required to crack the bigger problem that you are concerned with, the AGI challenge? How many people, how many years, how much money? Like what, what kind of a challenge right. is right. this? Um, yeah, so we, we've geared up the company. We've now raised, raised some money and we've, you know, uh, we've increased... Um, um, in fact, we're hiring hiring right now, so we hope hope to be about fifty people early next year, um, and then you know grow rapidly. Um, how much money it will require is very hard to hard to say to get to that inflection point where things become a lot easier and can be automated. But yep. it's going to be more than ten million. I mean, I've put about that much into the project uh, by now. Um, probably take more than a hundred million. Uh, will it take several billion? Uh, my guess is you could probably do it with, you know, less less than a, a billion dollars or a few billion dollars, um, which, you know, considering the amount of money that's already been spent or, in my mind, wasted <laughs> on pursuing intelligence is not a lot of money. So I certainly am, am I'm, I'm quite confident that it would not take 10 billion or 100 billion or trillion dollars to do and how many people a few hundred people working on it uh, until you get to a point where you you can use you know crowdsourcing and the system can learn by itself is sort of the idea i i have and well you said this much earlier but what exactly would the end point be and given that you think that this is a controllable end point, uh, well, first off, it's not an end point, but it is a, a stage when AGI is a reality, but it's not a runoff 
you know, uh, problem of superintelligence or singularity. What exactly can you describe the state of development after this one billion dollars is spent? Yeah. What, what, what are you using the system for? So, and what benefits directly would we be getting from a, such a system? Right. So the, the the kind of things we're pursuing now um, in terms of you know automating um, really what would otherwise be done by human labor in uh, customer support and 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 so on, but we People can't afford the human labor. Uh, so, you know, that's valuable, but that's not ultimately what, what's driving me. Ultimately, what's driving me is ha in having millions of PhD level AIs, uh, you know, working at the problems that we'd like to have solved. Um, and, you know, I mentioned some of them earlier. Some of the other ones that are, that are particularly dear to my heart are just generally disease and aging. I, I think, uh, it's um, it's criminal from my perspective that just when we learn how to live properly, we die. Um, so listen, Peter, I'm getting a more clear sense of what you're saying. In your future picture, and by the way, how far into the future, let's just say that your company is, and we'll talk in a second about some other startups that might be pursuing smart no. things, but let's just say that it's you, it's a few others, may, maybe quite a few others, because right. let's not just put our eggs in one basket. Right. And let's say that you all have a reasonable amount of money, the same kind of money that a unicorn startup would, 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 would get. So, you know, right. you'd eventually get to a billion dollar valuation. You'd have a few hundred million dollars to, to run with. And then, uh, you know, at some point you'd, you'd have some revenue along the way that can kind of, uh, right. where you can kind of run your own operation. And, and, and then eventually you'd be a few billion dollar uh, companies and there'll be more than one of you. What, how far, uh, yeah, I mean, is this within this decade we're talking about? Um, I think it's. It, I, I think it's very possible to have human level AI with, within uh, this decade, um, if the right people or you know, the right. In fact, I, I want to expand a little bit on that. Yes, if the right people work on the right projects. Um, no, I, I get that. Yeah, and the other caveat, which I found pretty interesting, is you called it. Uh, millions of PhD level AIs. Right. So it's very interesting the kind of distinction you're saying. You, you're saying they will kind of cap out at a very smart human being who has been dedicating their careers to being smart in a couple of domains, like a, a PhD level person. That's the, and the magnitude of having more than 10 and 20 and 30 and 40, the magnitude of the numbers of that level of smartness combined is what you're envisioning this system to consist of. So individual computers clustered or not, that each of them, whatever problem they're tackling, they're tackling at at least the level of a human PhD yes. level person. That, yes. That's kind of what you're looking at. Right. Yeah, I, I don't believe it'll, it, it'll top out at that you know, PhD level intelligence uh, so it's kind of more shorthand for having a... No, I understand, but yeah. it's a description of yeah. kind of vaguely where you kind of envision Correct. that it'll... Yeah. That it because the go. beauty is that once you've trained uh, one, you know, one AI in a particular domain, um, you know, let's, let's say it's cancer research, um, you know, everybody's familiar with and most people would support, um, you, you know, you make a million copies of it and you now have a million of these AIs 
pursuing this, pursuing different angles, you know, collaborating much better than humans would collaborate because they don't have egos and work, working 24-7, communicating, as I say, much, much better. So we will make uh, tremendous progress in, in all sorts of domains. Um, so I'm just wondering, as a kind of a devil's advocate, wouldn't it just be easier to design some sort of incentive structure so that a million PhDs were working on something fruitful independently of these machines? I mean, couldn't you just today just decide to spend... Uh, couple of billion dollars and, and tell a, a million PhDs to work on something useful and stop infighting. Would, wouldn't that be uh, well, even faster? Well, uh, no, it wouldn't be. Uh, Isn't, uh, for instance, I mean, the reason I'm thinking of this is right now, there probably is a million PhDs working on COVID. I actually haven't seen the statistics, but right. if you consider that most scientists with any worth their salt right now who previously was doing, they were doing cancer research, right. in whatever field of biology they're in, they are now trying to do something on COVID, or at least for the last six months, they have been trying to do something on COVID. Right. But I mean, first of all, humans are, are human and, and have the limitations of, of, of humans. So, I mean, your incentive structures can only go so far. I mean, we've seen, yes, people pull together in war times and, and so on, but I don't see people pulling together all that wealth with COVID, for example. But no, AIs have tremendous advantages over humans. Uh, they have photographic memory. They have instantaneous access to the internet. Uh, they work 24-7. They can communicate and share information extremely effectively. They can download whole parts of their brain, you know, and copy that over to, you know, a million PhDs or get cloned. Uh, we can't do that. I mean, it takes you, what, seven years to become a PhD, and then the specialization in a particular field, how many years? Uh, in AI, if, you know, if a particular problem is solved uh, or you, you'd realize that you're in a dead end, you just, you know, re relearn, you reprogram it, copy down different uh, new knowledge, and uh, you, can, you can switch gears and you can turn on a dime, basically, in terms of what your knowledge is, what you're pursuing, it's it's a complete game changer, but there's something else that I'm maybe even more excited about, and that is how AI will improve us as individuals, how it'll make for better human beings, how it'll help us live our lives, and that is what we call the personal personal assistant or PPA. Um, and the reason I double up on the word personal uh, should actually be triple. It's it's uh, personal for three reasons. A, you own it; it's yours. Uh, and it, it follows your agenda, not some mega corporation's agenda as we have now. Um, yeah. So it's personal in that way. It's personalized to you. So it knows everything about you that you wanted to know about you. So it's like your most trusted friend and it's personalized. And the third person, uh, the third P is, is that it's private. Um, that basically it will only share information with whom you wanted to share information. So think of it as that little angel we have on our shoulder that can, you know, advise you. And, you know, if you make decisions in your life um, of, you know, what to do, business to go into a relationship or medical or political or whatever, and you can kind of talk to this trusted friend and can help you. I actually see this, personal, personal assistant as really becoming an exocortex, an extension to our own minds, because we'll have psychological coupling with it. It doesn't even have to be built into our brain. 
It's just it'll become it'll become part of who we are. And but it'll well, make it. You gave me a clue be- there. It doesn't have to be built into your brain. I've been I've been studying kind of Elon Musk's Neuralink statements lately, and he claims he's going to make another statement on the twenty eighth of of August. What do we, what do you think about that approach? And and that's as a, as a lead into kind of other startups that are working on something in AI that you consider promising. I mean, is who who are the others that are at least working on more promising strains of AI than the current kind of only the deep learning perspective? Meaning, kind of uh, yeah. yeah the, so Neuralink, I I don't I, I think it'll be useful to to have that. But I think it's also going to be extremely challenging to get this to work well. And uh, I, I, I mean, the one hurdle I could just use a single word, FDA. I mean, that immediately puts it out by, you know, a few decades um, before something like that will be approved. You know, uh, people are going to freak out about mind control. You know, who has, who controls us computers. And But it's actually not going to be that useful because the um, we can't speed up our brains are thinking. So, you know, we, it's not going to, if we get bombarded with information through a neural link faster than our, our meat brains can process it, uh, we'll just have seizures. You know, it's, uh, it's not, you know, it's not, it's, you, you can't think at hundred times the speed or a thousand times the speed, whereas an exocortex can, it can think at a million times faster than, than you, you can with your, you know, meat brain. So I, well, I see I'm that not inside uh, Elon's mind, but I, I have an idea here that he, I, he he's probably thinking that it could go two ways, right? I mean, it's one thing is to give the brain input, but it's per, or perhaps also to learn more about the brain. In, and in which case, if you do, and you believe that this brain metaphor has something to it, then you could design computer systems that truly are neural links, meaning that they're right. extensions of the brain. But, uh, but you, you're skeptical. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I, I don't think that using uh, sort of the uh, neurophysiology, the, you know, the biology of what we have, is particularly useful to building uh, advanced AI. And the analogy that I always use there is, um, you know, we've had flying machines for more than a hundred years, and yet we know we're near reverse engineering a bird. You know, you really want to say, well, what is it we're trying to achieve? And then you use the material that that we have at hand and use the engineering skills that we have at hand to basically build a flying machine. But that that's very different from, from a bird. So in the same way, I, I, I see us building a thinking machine, um, but that'll be much more doable than reverse engineering the brain. So you have a singular mind, Peter. You're very... Um dismissive of a lot of activities out there. So I'm curious, is there anybody in the startup field or in the corporate side or even within universities, do you currently see anybody that's really doing the right thing and are doing promising things? So Neuralink, you're sort of like thinking so-so. What are what are some of the other actors that potentially are are doing this the right way? Yeah. So I don't spend a lot of time, uh, you know, sort of on a day-to-day basis worrying about it because I've already spent too much time trying to have communities with uh, other AGI-minded people, and I'm, I'm still on various lists, you know, and, and so on. I think I sent you a list, actually, of some of the people that uh, 
Uh, yeah, no, no, no. Wait, I, wait. These are some of the people, and some of them do have companies. I mean, Ben Gertzel uh, obviously has right, yeah. uh, several companies, and he's working on Sophia. You know, the talking uh, right. um, AGI and, right. and other but, things. Uh, any anybody in the field of you know third wave um, or AGI that actually has any commercial product? Um, quite frankly, I'm not aware of of, of anyone. It's quite remarkable as a statement, though, to to say that you don't think you're aware of anyone else that's doing something innovative in, in this field. I mean, is it really possible that the entire globe could be on a wrong perspective? That's a little bit like saying, you know, the Copernican worldview and the Galilean worldview. I mean, are you really saying that the that this thinking around how the mind works and, and this uh, brain, uh, this neural uh, kind of metaphor mm. has, has gotten the entire planet thinking in circles. Um, well, I mean, these things do happen. Um, and it, it's not that we're the only people that, you know, my team, the only people that think along these ways. I mean, after all, DARPA, you know, presented this third wave of AI. So clearly people at DARPA are thinking about what we really should be working on. In fact, they supposedly funded this by $4 billion, the third wave of AI. But when government money is involved, who knows where this ends up? You know, it always tends to end up in the wrong pockets. Um, so well, my point is at least they must have a, maybe they, uh, maybe they would be willing to come on my show and explain where this money went. Uh, but be, they must be, be sending it somewhere, right? I mean, they're, right. they're not all going to secret underground labs. They're going to startups. Right. But people have also become very good at convincing, uh, convincing, uh, people with money that deep learning, machine learning is the way to go. Um, you so know, you open, suspect open, that, I mean, that it's yeah. con convinced Microsoft to put a billion dollars uh, in in there with a statement saying we've cracked AI. All we need is more data, and I think they. So are you putting wrong. Open AI also into this second AI wave for you? Oh, They're not really. Absolutely, they are, yeah. the CEO has stated quite emphatically: uh, all they need is more data, more computing mm. power, more data, and that's all they need. And I, I think they are totally wrong. So, you know, there are hundreds of people that I communicate with that are very sympathetic to uh, that, you know, ag agree with uh, the shortcomings uh, of, of deep learning, machine learning, and that we need something like the third wave or cognitive architecture. But none of these people that I'm aware of actually have the wherewithal, uh, you know, the funding um, to actually do something significant in the field. All right, so Peter, summing up then, let's assume that some of our listeners actually have the resources and are interested enough to sort of pursue mm -hmm. some of your line of thinking. How do they go about tracking this field, discovering this field, uh, finding out about mm -hmm. individuals and approaches that they mm -hmm. should follow? I will obviously link up your work and that yes. would be, you know, your answer number one is look at what Peter's doing and I will give them that opportunity. But if there's... Anything else that has been marginally useful to you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, we've we've been asked this question, you know, dozens if not hundreds of times by potential investors and um, people interested uh, in in a uh, you know working a background information, who else is working on it, and so on. And we we have a whole pile of information. It really depends on 
what their background is, how technical it is, what their interests are, what they the conclusions they've already come to, and you know, basically where they're coming from makes a big difference of where the conversation goes. But yes, we we have a lot of a uh, uh, lot of information on. So, I mean, Ben Gertzel obviously has uh, a lot of interviews and there's podcast interviews. My uh, good uh, colleague, uh, I, you know, um, at MIT who runs his podcast on AI has interviewed him for three hours. That should right. be a pretty rich source. Absolutely. How about singularity.singularitynet.io, singularity these kinds of places, do you know? Are yeah, so, so yeah, I, I mean, you know, Ben Gersel, I've obviously worked with him. You know, we worked together to coin the term 2001. Um, as far as I can tell, he's very much, um, obviously, in the last two years, he did an ICO blockchain, uh, raised, you know, a bunch of money through blockchain. So his focus is right now of really building a, a community um, of people who can throw together different AI algorithms and, and have a marketplace for AI algorithms. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that, the best of my understanding, that's where his focus is. Now, um, to me, that is not at all useful in terms of solving AGI. It may be useful in itself to have a marketplace of you know clever algorithms, uh, but of course, there are already many other companies doing something similar. So mm -hmm. whether a blockchain approach and rewarding people, paying people for their algorithms, whether that will work out well. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but I don't, unfortunately I don't see his work really contributing to solving the problem of AGI. What about the AGI society and the AGI conference, these annual conferences? Are, are these societies active? Is there some work going on there? Yeah, unfortunately, this year, of course, had, had to be canceled. I, I haven't been able to go to the conferences, I think, for the last three years or so, but I have been to several of them. And yeah, it, it, it's a fantastic place to meet other people who, who are really interested and knowledgeable about AGI. Um, but, you know, with some, I don't know, 100 attendees there or so, you probably have not quite 200 different approaches, but, <laughs> you know, maybe 30, 40 different approaches. So you are an eclectic bunch trying yes. to solve the world's biggest problem. Yes. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I, I've certainly found it always very worthwhile going, going to those uh, conferences and meet very interesting people there. Well, Peter, it's been a, a, a very mind-opening uh, um, discussion for me. I hope that you got some of your points across, and I thank you very much for sharing all your insight with, uh, with me and, and the listeners. Well, thank you for guiding me down uh, dangerous territory <laughs> in this field <laughs> and allowing me to sort of express myself uh, freely. So thank you. You are welcome. Thanks uh, so much for coming on the show. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. You have just listened to episode 35 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arnevenheim, futurist and author. The topic was the quest for artificial general intelligence. Our guest was Peter Voss, CEO and founder of iGo.ai. In this conversation, we talked about how the field of artificial general intelligence has evolved what intelligence really is, whether machines have it, and what it takes to bring true progress in this field. We also delve into chatbots. My takeaway 
is that artificial general intelligence has an interesting future, but it is not immediate. Whether an entire generation of software developers are on the wrong path, I'm not sure about. But clearly, deeply understanding language, and especially understanding context, has a way to go for existing machines. Maybe just as well, because humans are not even adjusting to statistical AI's predictive capabilities. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player, and rate us at five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.